Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we're talking about Knives Out, the 2019 film written and directed by Ryan Johnson. I'm joined by part of the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everybody. And Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And we're also joined today by the creator of the wonderful YouTube channel, Just Right, writer and critic Sage Hyden. Sage, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me again. <laughs> again, this marks your fourth appearance on our show, which puts you squarely in the lead for most appearances, most frequent guest appearances. Well, I'm, I'm glad. I, I, I think uh, I'm obviously a better guest than anyone else you've ever had. So <laughs> clearly, this is why you need to keep talking to me exactly well this this does also mark a uh, a milestone though for sage's appearances it's the first time sage and trisha have actually gotten to be on an episode together that's true and it's the first time we're having sage on about something that everyone pretty much likes (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna say it's not my fault that you guys only were talking to him about like video games before (laughs) or yeah or dark Knight rises which is basically a video game controversial controversial other properties yeah it's been a rough road <laughs> but you made it you made it through the gauntlet and now you're allowed to talk about movies that we all like the hazing is over the hazing period is over <laughs> right. so sage you made a video called how knives out switches genres twice which is an excellent video i really really enjoyed that video it's one of my favorites of yours and i think it's a great way to kind of frame the conversation and and start getting into what makes Knives Out so special. So can you kind of give us a quick overview of the the topics that you cover in this video about how Knives Out switches genres? Sure. Thank you um, for being so complimentary about it. Yeah. So I made a video that talks about how uh, Knives Out starts as a mystery movie and then how it switches into a crime drama and then back into a mystery movie. What's interesting about that is that I think it's a great way to kind of revitalize the mystery genre. Usually, I think mysteries can get a little stale um, if you're just in it from like a puzzle solving perspective. But by structuring things this way, Ryan Johnson is able to handle all of the stuff that happens in a mystery movie within the first act, like most of it, right? So like usually in a mystery movie, you get to a place, you introduce all the characters, then a crime is committed, then you investigate it. And those all happen linearly. In Knives Out, he kind of overlays them. So you get both things happening at once, the character introductions and the investigation of the murder. And then we think that Marta is the killer for the like entire second act of the movie. So we're just focused on like if she'll make it out of this situation, which is mm-hmm. a crime movie, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. you know, you're watching The Wolf of Wall Street or Catch Me If You Can. So you're just concerned about the characters like staying out of the hands of the law. He switches it again just for like the classic Sherlock scene or uh, Hercule Poirot scene where the detective Mm. reveals the truth about the about the mystery. That's the scene everyone likes from the mystery genre. It's like why the genre exists. So he's like still able to have that at the end of the movie while doing all this, you know, genre shuffling throughout. So. In other words, what you're telling us is this movie is a crime caper at the center of a whodunit. <laughs> Not bad. Well, uh, what I would say was uh, it's it's more of a uh, of a donut hole that is crime outside of. Uh... Trisha and I'll just yeah, we'll see yes. you guys later. You guys yeah. just uh... <laughs> the battle of the Benoit Blancs. Well, I have a question then. 
because I know that you also made a video, Sage, about the movies that inspired Knives Out and Mm -hmm. sort of did a deep dive into classic whodunits. I agree with you that this feels really fresh. It's really exciting and interesting to watch. And I you know, think it's incredibly timely in 2020, especially. It was feeling that way to me. My question is, why do you think the traditional whodunit kind of passed out of popularity? Like, what, what did get stale about it that kind of maybe necessitated this sort of updated version of it from Ryan Johnson? So I think the answer to that is in a line from this movie okay that i've caught on this viewing of the movie it's in the the first scene where you meet marta she's uh in her kitchen and her Mm -hmm. mom is telling her sister to shut off the murder mystery movie that she's watching right with joseph gordon levitt (laughs) yeah (laughs) she argues and then she finally agrees she's oh well i knew who it was anyway Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. if you know who did it in a whodunit then like, what else is there to get from it? If that's all that you have to offer the audience in a, the, and the story is kind of like a clinical, like just evaluation of facts and logically putting together a solution, then the story doesn't have like a lot of, like, or might not have a lot of staying power, right? Like, mm, like rewatchability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Like Knives Out, I will rewatch at the drop of a hat. Mm-hmm. Like when Michael was like, "Hey, you want to talk about Knives Out?" I'm like, "Yes, I want to rewatch Knives Out." <laughs> of course I do. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's such a fun movie to watch. I can't really say that about like you know the Murder on the Orient Express, which is a, a, like the best Hercule Poirot story. You're talking about the one with Albert Fitty. Yes, of course. Okay, just checking. <laughs> I got a lot of flack for that in my comments for saying he was the best Poirot, but yeah. Oh, that's funny. Interesting. Yeah, I actually uh, got to co-write the Cinema Wins Everything Great About Knives Out video or or pair of videos, and which means watching like every 10 seconds of this movie a couple times over and then moving on to the next 10 seconds. And first of all, that was so fun to do. And second of all, like I was still so happy to come back and rewatch this movie, like even having like (laughs) picked apart all these details and stuff. It's just it's entertaining moment to moment. There are a lot of reveals that happen throughout. So it's not just this question mark, question mark, question mark. And then finally, this big third act reveal. It's like constantly keeping on your toes. It's constantly funny. It's constantly telling you new things and that kind of thing. And I think that maybe the um, the more classic whodunit, I think, had a little bit of a drier taste to it a lot of the time where it was just sort of like, here's the mystery. And then nothing major, major, major is going to happen until we solve the mystery. I mean, people there might be murders along the way and stuff like that but there's no big like holy crap kind of stuff happening in like the second act i think a lot of the time and that's a good distinction too to call it like the classic mystery genre because it's not like mm-hmm. mystery as a whole had has a huge problem but like the mm. agatha christie like genre right. of it right the the sherlock holmes genre of it that form of mystery kind of was running into a problem like it, it's almost telling that one of the best examples of that kind of genre of film is a movie parodying it like clue was such right. a great yeah, yeah yeah you know classic mystery film but it's also making fun of it and it, it, that almost feels like it's a hallmark of well we've reached the end of the line here, <laughs> where like the parody is also one of the best examples of like everyone knows it and now we've been able to make a movie about how everyone knows how this works so maybe this is just kind of over now yeah i wonder too if there's like a thematic sort of evolution that people are more interested in where I'm truly just this is kind of formulating in my brain right now. So I'm interested to hear what you guys think. But I wonder if the classic whodunit, it seems to me like it's mostly about how, right? Like, 
how was the crime committed? Mm. And, you know, there's a little bit of the why in there, but I feel like the crime story, which most of this is, is really concerned with the why. And I wonder if that's like more thematically what we're sort of interested in is like more of a character motivation standpoint. And the how piece that keeps us watching is about, you know, how the criminal is going to elude the, you know, detective or or representative of the, of the law in whatever way. But I wonder, yeah, if there's some kind of thematic thing where we got less interested in the themes of a traditional whodunit as opposed to like a crime story that has like maybe made us gravitate more toward like this sort of type of evolution of the genre. It's definitely an interesting thought. Yeah, because I think there is, you know, I I keep thinking about Murder on the Orient Express, the most recent one with like Mm -hmm. Daisy Ridley and Kenneth Branagh. And watching that, I found myself intellectually intrigued watching the thing play out in front of me, but I wasn't emotionally moved at any point and it wasn't fun to watch in any of these other levels like we're talking about with knives out where it's also just like funny and has a playful spirit and so it it felt like the epitome of just leaning on the interest in watching this film is to just kind of see the ending you know to find out what happened and have someone tell you that and that's kind of it and i feel like they kind of try to put in some of the you know I don't want to spoil Murder on the Orient Express, <laughs> but, you know, there's a little bit of like motivation and why stuff in there, but it didn't feel compelling in any kind of way. And so that is interesting that maybe going more toward the crime story, like you point out in your video stage, um, you know, catch me if you can, these examples where you're also getting to watch the detective and the criminal at the same time. Like yeah. there's just a lot more room to explore interesting ideas and what it even means what does law even mean? Like, there's so much more to explore mm-hmm. in a situation like that. Right, yeah. What is crime? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and in, in the crime genre, the interesting thing is going to happen in the future, right? At any moment that you're watching the story. Whereas in, like, in a mystery movie, it's mm-hmm. happened, like, it's something that's happened in the past. You're putting it together. Crime stories, I think, are just kind of like, they, you know, they hit your your ancient reptilian brain, like, a little closer than a mystery story was like you know you're more invest you you get more attached to emotions and to character than you do to like to the logic of figuring something out even though there's like you know there's a lot of catharsis that comes from figuring out a mystery it's just like a different part of your brain right and stories i think are more successful when they are hitting you on a bunch of different levels i feel like it also requires the audience to not have so specific a set of expectations like like again like you point out in in your videos on knives out and this genre like it because it's become so formulaic you know by the end someone's going to come out and tell you everything so it there isn't maybe a, a requirement to get as emotionally invested in what's happening right now because you know by the end this this and this is, is going to happen i think it's really interesting and something that knives out obviously gets around in a really impressive way and like marta is like such a great protagonist yes too. yeah yeah, like, yeah it's it, like you like i really find myself attached to like the protagonists in a mystery story mm-hmm. uh, but like this protagonist is like just elicits so much empathy from the audience because of her social situation that she's in and the situation that she has with this family and how they treat her yeah Well, that's what I was going to say, is that I think a big thing about a crime story, because I really love crime stories. I'm a massive Patricia Highsmith fan, and that's basically what she writes. And, you know, she wrote Talented Mr. Ripley um, and a bunch of other, like, you know, very, very much like in the brain of a criminal. She wrote The Strangers on a Train as well. What we want is 
a character arc, and I'm not sure that the construction of a whodunit leaves space for a protagonist and a character arc, right? Your your main character is going to be your detective, but it's not like there's an arc going on unless he somehow comes to a new <laughs> dawning realization about how dark, you know, humankind is or something, which sometimes happens in like a, you know, Philip Marlowe sort of classic, that kind of noir sort of mystery. But with this, we have a real protagonist who goes on a real journey and actually has an arc where we see at the beginning how she's being incredibly taken advantage of by this family. And we want her to realize that. And we want her to like be able to, you know, get free from all of this, just the ways that they, you know, kind of take advantage of her trust and her her kindness and all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And and that's what exactly what we get by the end, which is so satisfying. Right. You get sort of everything you want from your characters, but like placed throughout the movie. So it's like you get all the characters that you can love to hate because they're not the ones you care about. Mm -hmm. And then you get your sleuth detective who you like watching and you like want him to win, I guess, but you don't necessarily, you're not like wondering about his home life or whatever, because he's just, that's not who that character is. He's there to solve the puzzle and, and sort of to entertain you as he's doing it. And then in Marta, you get everything you guys were just talking about, the empathetic protagonist who you're just rooting for, even once you know you know that she is quote unquote the the killer you know and then and then you're you're still on her side because she is the best of the best and then weirdly you have ransom as every other character he's like the confidant Mm -hmm. and the murderer (laughs) and like you know like he he sort of does he plays all these different roles that you usually get in this kind of movie but he's all of them at once which is pretty cool it's a really smart way to hide his guilt is to have him be the confidant the one that she is like you know, running away with and talking to and all that kind of stuff, it helps sort of like, well, I guess he's probably not the one who did it because he's the the only one on her side right now, you know? Mm-hmm. Ransom is kind of a miraculous character. Yeah. <laughs> like when I was watching the movie today, like it struck me that he doesn't show up for like the first hour of this yeah. movie. Oh, yeah. Like, like you kind of see him in flashbacks, like he, where that part where he's like, walking angrily out of Harlan's office, but like that's mm-hmm. it until like he shows up and the dogs are wrestling him as he's getting out of the car. Like Chris Evans makes such an impact on this movie, but he's like not in it for like for like half of it. And then yeah, he's like filling out all those roles. And also he's the first person you suspect in the movie. Of course. Um, right, right. So it, it's kind of crazy how they effectively made it still a surprise that it was him even though like the movie draws a lot of attention to him early on. Yeah. Well, cause that, then you got Michael Shannon with a limp and you're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and just acting sketchy as hell. Generally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, right. I, I feel like that's the casting obviously is amazing right. in this film. And I feel like there are meta things happening with the casting too. But so like you're saying, like everybody in this family is a great actor and you could easily see them being the murderer. So you have this great setup of like, well, if this was a classic mystery story like all the elements are here and i could totally see any like all these people have a motivation but then also yeah chris evans is in this movie and i feel like immediately on a meta level that's like well like it's gotta be him it's chris evans so i think at least that's how i was thinking about it like you don't go and get chris evans for this like role and then bring him in only halfway through like there's something important happening here or else you wouldn't have chris evans playing this role but like you're saying sage like because they do this genre switch because of that we're following marta it gives us lots of reasons to put away those suspicions and kind of like you're saying like by the end it's a surprise that he was behind it in the end 
even though, like you're saying, that's probably what who a lot of people are suspecting in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, they do a good job of making Ransom truly a black sheep in the family. And the family is so united in kind of its awfulness. Like, (laughs) Ransom is a jerk. And we understand that, right? When he walks in and the detectives are like, we want to talk to you. And he gives them that face and then just walks away from them. So, like, we understand that Ransom is a jerk, but because the movie effectively separates him from the rest of the family and makes him kind of an outcast. And there's so much vitriol thrown at him from this wall, right? They're always like in a tableau of like everybody else and Ransom. It does almost make you feel sorry for him in the way that Marta feels like an outsider at times, right? Where it's like, well, you know, Ransom is kind of a, you know, good for nothing layabout in this case. Or, yeah, as as I like to say, upper class with a secret, <laughs> as so many murderers are, <laughs> uh, so many handsome murderers are in TV shows. It does create sympathy for him. So, like, even though I knew from the minute that the dogs barked at him that he was involved in some way, mm-hmm. because they tell us, well, Meg heard the dogs barking at 3 a.m. She woke up and I was like, oh, the dogs don't like Ransom. OK, Ransom is involved. But even so, his positioning within the family dynamic is clever and it does create sympathy when everyone is banging you can see when everyone is banging on marta's windows trying to like totally having ganged up on her and are surrounding her in her car and he's like oh come on and get in you're like yeah go i mean he's an ally he is presented as an ally and he doesn't immediately act in a way that red flags himself as being suspicious. So even if you're like me and you picked up that he's involved somehow, you're like, well, he's hiding something, but but maybe it's not what I think. Maybe he's maybe he's hiding something else. Who knows? You know, it reminds me of the show Broadchurch, where they just set up like in the first season, everyone has a secret. They genuinely do have right. a secret, but not everyone is the killer. You know, so it's like everyone has a reason to hide something, which I think is a lot of murder mystery kind of thing. Exactly. When it's sort of like an, an enemy of an enemy is my friend kind of feeling also yeah. because, you know, by the time he shows up, we do kind of have this disdain for the family. And so he's kind of the only one that pokes back at them and makes fun of them and you know when he's driving away and it's like i think this is probably the best thing that's ever happened to you guys Uh like using their words against them (laughs) i feel like it's fun and we like him because we get we're getting to see someone kind of putting the family in its place so i feel like again it's kind of using comedy to get us to yeah sympathize or warm up to this person that otherwise might be very suspicious right and i mean how can you hate a guy who has a nice sweater true (laughs) yeah looks so good in white cable knit (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's and it's chris evans like you i want chris evans to be a good guy it's fun to see him not be a good guy but i always want him to be good like that he's playing exactly what i want where it's like i want you to be good but i also kind of want to see you be bad despite me wanting you to be good right and what a great role to have uh the same year you're heading out of the mcu you know it's sort of like hey i'm not just 
this guy. <laughs> you know, I can also be this guy and I can like kick ass as that guy. You know, also Lucas Lee. Come on. Right. Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> yes. It's always refreshing to see an actor who seems to have a sense of humor about their own career. Definitely. And Chris Evans is exactly that. I mean, everyone in this is exactly that guy. Like, I love seeing this from Daniel Craig also, who's <laughs> just. Yeah. Yes. You don't take this part unless you have a sense of humor about your own career. You know, you can't take yourself completely seriously at this point. So. Foghorn Craighorn. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. But yeah, everyone's playing against type mm. in this movie. Tony Collette is insanely good. Just like the subtlety, like her character is like over the top, but she still has so much subtlety to it. It's uh, right. yeah. I just love watching her face move. Yeah. Like- <laughs> <laughs> Which is good of an actor. That's generally what you want people right. to think about. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be very weird seeing Daniel Craig and Ana de Armas in No Time to Die. I expect very different characters and, and relationships. I did not remember she was in that. I just want them to fight crime in movies together always. <laughs> like, and I just want to believe that they're like friends in real life. I just, I love it. All right. A question I have for you guys is getting back to this idea of the genre switching that happens. What? was your experience of that the first time through? Because I had it, it definitely messed with me and I'll talk about that in a little bit, but I want to hear from you guys what that experience was like. Were you, did you clock it consciously? Were you just in the movie and so it was fine? Was there a period of trying to then figure out what the movie is? So Sage, let's start with you. What what was going through your head when that happened in the movie theater? Honestly, like a little piece of me was like kind of disappointed the first time I was watching it, just because the movie had sold itself as, you know, we're doing the big Agatha Christie movie. We're going to, you know, do the best version of this kind of mystery. And I was having such fun with that first, you know, 30 minutes with all of the character interviews and while Blanc doing his thing and the flashbacks. So when it just kind of hands you an answer that you think is the answer, I was kind of like, oh, but I kind of wanted to still do the like, you know, still do mm-hmm. the mystery stuff, right? Even mm-hmm. though I've kind of been like, you know, t- it like on this podcast, I've kind of been talking about the weaknesses of that genre. Like at the t- at that moment, I was like, you know, I kind of wanted more of it. And I also wanted more of that house. Um, <laughs> I think like if, if, there's, mm-hmm. if there's one tiny weakness of this movie, it's that the whole thing doesn't take place at the house, right? Like yeah. you want it all mm-hmm. to be there. So like there was that going on. And it was also because I was like, sensing in like in that moment that it was shifting genres right that it was now a crime story so even though i was like on board with what the rest of the movie was giving me like at that moment there was you know that slight hesitation to to do that yeah i feel like i i had something similar but I want to hear from Trisha and Brian. Brian, what was your reaction during that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely didn't clock it as a, as a genre change. Like, that's not something I really considered until I saw Sage's video. But I mentioned more than once that I do love when I have no idea what is left in a movie. Where it's like the movie does mm-hmm. the thing you think is going to happen at the end. And then you're like, but there's an hour left. Now what? Mm-hmm. And... That's how I felt about the reveal, you know, the coin flip reveal of Marta and, you know, the whole he killed himself because she did the thing and then she had to, you know, do all the things. And then uh, and then you're like, OK, cool. There's an hour left. I have no idea what's going to happen now. And that was exciting. But then to see it sort of slowly come back into 
turn back into a whodunit, you know, like we were talking about, again, without even realizing that there's like a genre switching, but it's sort of that feeling of, okay, well, now we know the mystery, what's left. And then, oh, now there's a brand new mystery. And then, you know, so there's so much left to happen in the movie that the third act feels exciting and like there's new stuff happening around every corner and not well the third act is now just explaining everything you saw in the first two acts it's, it does that too but in a way that it just still feels like so engaging all the way into the end the only negative after watching this movie was okay but did it all work did it all pay off i'm not sure but then every time i watch this movie like i love it more and more because i'm like yes it does and yes that clue is there there's so many setups and reveals you know everything from like even i just noticed this time for the first time in the last shot, her three fingers are covering up the three phrases on the cup. So you can't even see them. And it looks like she's naturally holding it until the final, final shot where she lifts mm-hmm. it. You just see the words, my house. The fact that Richard throws the ball out the window and then Jamie Lee Curtis is the one who finds the ball and returns it. And that's why she finds the, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like there's so, so, so many little things that are just make this movie so rewatchable just because it's a fun movie to watch, but also because there are, there is so much set up and pay off. So I think that's the only thing after the first time where I was like, but is this a rewatchable movie? And after having seen it four times now, I can say, yes, it is. <laughs> that moment where he throws the ball out the window is the moment that I fell in love with the movie. Mm. I don't know that I've laughed that, for some reason. That's just like exactly <laughs> my sense of humor that he finds this ball and he's realized this truth. And it's like, he's going to throw the ball. And then it kind of just like falls out the window. <laughs> and, like pathetically, like it just tickles me so much every time. Right. Yeah. The, the moment that did it for me is also involves throwing. And that's when Marta throws the piece of the, of the, <laughs> Of the house, oh, oh, like oh, off yeah, screen, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right? You, what you're doing this close up on Daniel Craig, and he's like, "I wonder what could have happened here." And you're watching <laughs> yeah. the person like dispose of the evidence, like right. <laughs> right. So, there's so much undercutting that's done in this movie. Like, yeah, you know, like yeah. they constantly present you with an idea and then like cut to something that just immediately undercuts it. Amazing. Yeah, it's really smart and self aware, which we can come back to, but. Yeah, I I was just trying to out-clever this movie the first time I was watching it. I was like, I can solve this. Like, you know, and even when they told me that Marta did it, I was like, no, 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 no. Something, (laughs) (laughs) absolutely not. They're not going to tell me right now. There's there's many twists and turns to come, but I'm just going to solve it ahead of time and and figure it out. And I I was not really able to do that. And also I was having more fun. There was a certain point where I remember I was sitting in the theater and consciously going like, you got to stop this <laughs> like to myself. Like you got to stop trying to solve it. <laughs> exactly my experience. You're yeah. ruining your experience. Just just let it do what it's going to do. Um I'm a massive Ryan Johnson fan and so I was trying to let the filmmaker take me on a ride and not try to outguess it. I think the genre switch I think we get a lot of films that genre blend, mm-hmm. but not as many that genre switch in the way that this does. Because it's it's a really clear demarcation. And the movie almost wants you to know it. But unless you're incredibly familiar with both of these genres and sort of the distinguishing characteristics of each, you wouldn't be able to name it as such in the way that you're talking about, Brian. I think the thing that is smart about it, although I was trying to be too smart, is that, like I said, you it invests you so much in the character of Marta. Like in my brain, I was 
almost going, but what if Marta really did do it? Or like, mm. what if she is malicious somehow underneath, right? Like where you, right. you're trying to second guess absolutely everybody, even the person you like the most. And then you kind of have to tell yourself to stop doing that. Or it's like, if it was Marta, nobody would ever forgive Ryan Johnson for any part of this movie. So it mm. really cannot be. But yet you st- you still are trying to do that. I think that for the average film goer, her dynamic with Harlan is so lovely once we see it and it's just shown to us as truth that i think that's the point at probably which most people stop trying to guess that it's her or stop thinking that she's hiding something other than from daniel craig's character you know yeah so i, I feel like that was kind of my experience too it was kind of a combination of your experience sage and trisha where i was a little bit disappointed because i i do love when the agatha christie thing can be pulled off it is really fun And it felt like this movie was well on its way to doing that. And Mm -hmm. so when it takes this left turn, I was like, well, wait, but then what? And so then I started fighting the movie a little bit and trying to outsmart it and also being like, but I'm not going to trust Marta. Like, no, 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 movie. (laughs) I'm not going to fall for your play here. What is wrong with us, Michael? Like, there's something broken within us, I think. There's, yeah. Well, I mean, it's that that need to outsmart. Yeah. Yeah, Well, and I, so I feel like there's, a moment, I believe it's basically the midpoint where you go back into Marta's head and see a little bit more of what happened at the very yeah, end where you is. see her go in and actually see Harlan slit his throat and all and that. And she starts crying on the staircase. Right. Mm-hmm. Her performance, by the way, when she has Incredible. to like gather herself and like go from I just saw like my best friend kill himself to I have to go do all this. Like, so good. Yes. So that's the part, though, that like kind of i think i was turning my brain off and like let go michael this is that's not (laughs) what this movie is but something about her performance and the way that was shot and then how it reveals the blood on her shoe yeah it felt like the film language was trying to be a little bit but wait there's something maybe hidden here there's something a little sinister here Mm. was how i read those moments and then that refueled my need to fight the movie. <laughs> so, yeah, the the first time through the genre switch, basically the entire second act, I felt like I was fighting the movie. And then when it came back in the third act, I was like, oh, I shouldn't have been fighting you this whole time. You had us on, all under control and it was a great ride. You have to just believe it at some point. Yeah. Like, right. you just have to get on board at some point. Well, I feel like such a pacifist compared to you guys, because I wasn't fighting <laughs> it at all. <laughs> I know, I'm the same. I'm just like, just show me a movie. I'm good. I'll complain about what I think about it later. Yeah. Well, I, I, I like bought into the, the Marta story. I was like, oh, okay, they mm. told us. So I didn't, I wasn't fighting it on, on that level. I was like, wishing it was different until I stopped. Right. Mm-hmm. There is that trust that you have in a filmmaker that they are going to sort of obey a certain cinematic language. So. When you see the Marta flashback happen just as a flashback, you are trusting the filmmaker that this is reality. But if she were telling the story to somebody and then it were presented as a flashback, well, now we're just seeing a visual representation of what she's saying. But because the the movie just has it as her flashback, like I fully bought, this is 100% reality. But later, if somebody is talking about something and we see that as a flashback, film language tells me that, well, maybe we're just seeing the footage, the sort of visual representation of what they're saying and not necessarily the reality of it. To that extent, I wasn't like fighting the movie in terms of the way you're talking about. Which, in fairness, the movie calls attention to earlier many times where different people in the interview process are giving unreliable versions of the truth. Yeah, exactly. We see that. And I agree with you. I think 
it was that midpoint flashback for me because the scenes where we see Marta with Harlan, they have such a wonderful dynamic. They understand each other so completely. We love, love watching them play Go. We see him telling her the truth about like all of his different family members and mm-hmm. how kind of disgusted he is by them in a lot of ways. But even so, it has to do with she's she. If you really want to be suspicious, if you want to be me or Michael in this situation, <laughs> there's still technically maybe a performative aspect to it where she could be performing for Harlan's sake right. and acting innocent around Harlan. Sure. But the scene where she just watched him cut his own throat and she's crying on the staircase, there is no one around her. There is nothing that could possibly be performative about that. It's that moment where she decides to turn around and go back and try to stop him from killing himself. And then we see her reaction to it. That was the moment for me where I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. At this point, I got to trust Marta because if I don't, there's no one else for me to trust in this movie or follow or anything. Right. Um, except for maybe Benoit Blanc, which is, <laughs> I, I, I don't even know if he's going to be able to solve this. He doesn't seem like that great of a detective, to be honest. So, <laughs> Well, right. And when this brings up this interesting idea of, yeah, subjectivity and mm-hmm. um, perspective in film. And yeah, like, like you're saying, there's... In the beginning of this movie, the flashbacks do have subjectivity. And Sage, you point this out in your video also, where the, I forget his name, Jamie Lee Curtis's husband. Richard. Right. When he's telling the story of the party, we see an image where everyone's smiling and Marta's having so much fun. And then when we see it from Marta's perspective, we'd see how not fun it was and how Mm -hmm. he's kind of uh, very insensitive and unaware of himself in many ways is how I'll describe it. And so I think that's a really interesting thing to have. And it's very effective in setting up these characters and establishing how they see themselves and how they see the relationship with everyone else. But also then I think it makes me feel like I can't 100% trust those flashbacks. And I think like you're saying, Trish, that there is the language used. I think it is clear, but there was there's a little bit of precedent of this movie will manipulate what it's showing me right. to create to make me feel or understand what that character was feeling or seeing at the time. But in that moment when Marta's on the stairs, like there's no one, there's no reason it would be doing that. So I shouldn't right. have been fighting it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I acknowledge this, but it's an interesting device to be using in a film like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because any movie might have that moment that says we're breaking our trust with you. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think like that's, we've all watched a movie where we're like, Please don't do that thing. Please don't do that. You did that thing. All right, I'm over. You know what I mean? I think it's Knives Out is a movie that could at any second be like, actually, this was all a lie. This is what's real. You know, and I'm glad it doesn't do that to the to the extent that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to do's, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, I just like adding on to everything you guys are saying. I just think it's such a very interesting distinction to make as a thing to for filmmakers to note that like 
there's a difference between a flashback that is someone explaining it to another character and just a flashback in how much the the audience trusts those those two things as brian you brought up i think that's that's a, a phenomenal little uh, lesson in there <laughs> like the flashbacks i i think in the in this movie are they signal it so well with the cake mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but like every time you talk to someone it's they cut to it's them giving Carlin the cake, right? Because they're the closest ones <laughs> mm-hmm. with Carlin, right? Um, so it's just like it te- like communicates that to the audience immediately that it's like this is their version of it. But then it also uses like that same kind of like playing with reality and perspective in like the quote unquote present timeline with the like they've got the portrait of Harlan throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. So like this time I watched that I like took down like which moments it happens when they look at it and like the first time you see it, Marta is just about to go in for the interview and she's looking at Harlan and he's kind of like a concerned look on his face. And then the second time it happens, Walt is giving her a hug saying like, we'll take care of you, you know, like before they know about all the will stuff, uh, thinking that they're going to provide for her. And the the portrait again is like giving this like disappointed look. Mm-hmm. And then in the finale, when she's won and the whole thing's over, she looks at the, at the portrait and, and Harlan is like beaming, smiling, right? So like Harlan's expression is totally just like how she's interpreting it. It's a little trick that cinema can play on you that like you don't really notice that stuff the first time. Sorry to bother you, the exact same thing too. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. yeah, I think that is what's impressive about this film ultimately and Brian Johnson as a storyteller is that he's able to wield all these things correctly. Like it's it's a lot of film language things to be balancing when you're dealing with subjectivity but in the real world you have to believe what we're showing you but we're gonna you change the real world also but you know i think that's ultimately what i was really impressed by by the end despite some of the the bumps in the road and there's a couple that i want to talk about really quickly but yeah by the end i feel like it all comes together in this really just fun satisfying cathartic experience Mm -hmm. and that's hard to do uh, yeah, because movies are hard to make, and I feel like he didn't make it easy on himself either. And that he managed to pull it all together is very impressive. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And like, I have little bumps with this movie too, but for the most part, they they're just overshadowed by how much I like the rest of it. The one that gets me the most, one I don't think it's a great choice in this movie, but there's a movie called North from 1991 with Elijah Wood. Yes, there is. His parents are played by Jason Alexander and Julia Lee Dreyfus, which is. Really strange casting in 1994. (laughs) Okay. And then there's this part in the movie where these bad guys want North to think his parents don't want him. He's like left home. So they interview his parents and they asked, oh, would you rather have a new son? We know this little boy named Hugh. He needs a family. Maybe he could be your new son. And the parents say in disgust, we don't want Hugh. He's not our son. Uh, So then the footage is then shown to North. Mm -hmm. But where the new question is, you know, do you have anything you'd like to say to North? They say, we don't want Hugh. Uh, you know why not he's not our son <laughs> and growing up my friend and i would like constantly quote that as just the the only thing we could remember from this like not very good movie <laughs> we just remembered that what we don't want hugh so now a quarter century later i'm watching the finale of knives out and i'm going what <laughs> but it all but it all works because you watch marta do like the theoretical calculus on it at the right. end, where she's like wait the help calls you hugh because you're an asshole. <laughs> yeah. I do love that. It's perfect delivery from her. <laughs> also, weirdly, 2019 was like 
the year of like physical afflictions when feeling a different thing. So in Knives Out, you have <laughs> I vomit when I lie. In Joker, he has a, a laughing condition. In A Rainy Day in New York, Elle Fanning's character oh, yeah. hiccups when she's sexually conflicted. And I swear there was another one. I can't remember what it was, but there it was just is. like. It's Hustlers. Ooh. There's a character in Hustlers who also vomits when she's nervous. It's like an almost exactly the same yep. thing. And it's none of it's real. It just makes me so annoyed. <laughs> where I'm like, you can't just do this as a plot device. Like, right. I don't know. It's fine, I guess, in Knives Out because Knives Out to me is such a broad comedy and the others are not. Right. Right. Well, I guess right. Rated in New York, who knows what that's trying to be. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have time to talk about that movie. Yep. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it is like they're trying to make us trust Marta or give us a reason to trust her more than we trust anybody else. Right. And I get it. And again, it's trying to be a broad comedy and like it's slightly funny, I suppose. During the climax, I was like, she's about to throw up right on his face. Like I just uh-huh. knew it for 100 percent sure. It's a good payoff objectively speaking, but right. we, all, we all know how I feel about puke and right. movies. We've yeah. talked about how you shouldn't ever show vomit, but I do feel like this is like in the exception category for me because every time I watch it also, I forget that that happens at the end. And so when she's vomiting earlier in the movie, I'm always like, thank you, Ryan Johnson, for not making me watch this come out of right. it. Like you hide it. Yep. And then you get to the end and you're like, oh, well, this yeah. is why. Okay. All right. I think that's okay. But it is the least disgusting vomit in film history in the finale there. Like, even though you see it, I don't know, something about how they designed it, it, it it's like not as gross as other film vomit for, for some reason. I mean, when it's still on Chris Evans' face for the next <laughs> like two minutes of movie. But I, I do feel like there's something in like the coloration of the particles that's like, it's not, it, it could be more disgusting than it is. Sure. I don't know. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. It doesn't look like it's vomit. It's like... What a compliment. <laughs> I, see, I don't know about that. Like It looks like someone took like a, like, like cream corn and just poured it on Chris Evans' face <laughs> or like some looks. peppers or something. But it, yeah, but it's like, it, yeah. <laughs> This is the kind of analysis that your listeners come <laughs> yeah, right, right? Like, hey. <laughs> Well, a fun game to play that I I like to play is re- is called Real Snow or Fake Snow when I'm watching a movie, and I just mm-hmm. like to like look at snow for a while and decide if it's real or fake. And I I have that game with vomit as well, where I'm like real vomit, real vomit or fake vomit. Of course, it's always fake vomit. I was gonna say, what movies are you watching? <laughs> no, but just evaluating like how good of a job they're doing, right. At like whatever. But I honestly think the vomit at the end it's got some believable qualities to it. I agree with you, but. I was going to say something before all of this started. <laughs> I don't remember what it was. Sage, you're never invited back. <laughs> That's what did it. The detour into the vomit. It is a crutch, I think, is what we were talking about. Is right. The, sure. That, like, it's a screenwriting crutch to be like, this character has this flaw, this thing that you've never heard of before that, you know, they do this when this happens. Yeah. But I feel like they, you know, it gets set up within the first act like i feel like they sneak it in like just in time to make me be like all right i guess i can buy that like this is part of your what if you know scenario for this movie it is interesting but i feel like it's also then used in clever ways you know like chris evans uses her propensity to vomit against her right when they're in right I actually really love that scene where mm-hmm, he, yeah. I heard him ask for the extra bowl and I was like, what? Yeah. Why? <laughs> and then it, it comes comes around. 
when the bowl gets set down, you just see his eyes sort of dart to it for a second and then dart back to her <laughs> again. I would, I didn't notice that till like the third time watching the movie, but I'm like, oh, he sees the bowl. He's going to do a thing. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is one of the things I love most about Ryan Johnson is especially in his mysteries. Cause I would say this is maybe his like third mystery. If you want to, I don't know. I don't know where you want to put Looper. I guess that's like an action movie, right? Yeah. Um, but like, Brick and Brothers Bloom. Brick maybe? and Brothers Bloom. Yeah. 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 But especially Brick. I mean, Ryan Johnson is so good at placing almost equal weight on details that do not matter as he does on details that matter. And so, like we were talking about with the baseball, the baseball almost seems more important than it is. Mm-hmm. Right. And right at the climax, the dog comes running in with the baseball and Jamie Lee Curtis wrenches it out of his mouth. And you're kind of like, Ooh, is the baseball more significant? Is it going to reveal something? Does she know something about the baseball? Is she involved in some way? But that's because all of the various sort of symbols and same thing with like the blank envelope again with Jamie Lee Curtis, the invisible ink or whatever. Ryan Johnson is really good at placing almost equal emphasis on everything, which is such a good disguise for all of the things that he doesn't want you to notice too much or place too much emphasis on. And all of those things do end up paying off, but in ways that you do not expect. In Brick, for example, if you haven't seen it, first of all, what are you doing? Go watch Brick. (laughs) Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character hears essentially the plot of the entire movie right at the beginning or like the backstory that he's trying to figure out right at the beginning. But none of it means anything to you. And so you forget all of those details. And then as they come back, again, they're being treated almost like each single element of the mystery is a critical piece, when in fact, only like one of those is really a critical piece. It's such a good, I don't know, as someone who would love to write a mystery someday, it's a really, really good way to hide things. Yeah. And and I think that's really important for something like a whodunit, maybe Sage, since you went on a whodunit binge you could uh shed some light on this but i think i remember watching um two movies i think they both came out in 2001 weirdly uh gosford park and from hell which both have like there's a bunch of characters and at the end you find out which one of them did it and i just remember i haven't seen either of those movies twice so maybe you know this is just my 17 year old brain whatever like trying to put this together but i just remember once i found out who did it i was like i don't even remember who this character is because it was like in order to do a whodunit you have to give a lot of characters a lot of screen time and give them a lot of details so that you can hide the details in a sort of amidst all of the the character web but if i don't remember who that character is at the end of the movie i don't care about that character then it sort of doesn't really pay off and i think that's what's so great about making ransom such a central character in the second half of this movie is it's not just, oh, it was, you know, and there's not too many family members and all the family members are so big that you are going to remember most of them. But it's not like, oh, it was Fran or, you know, some person in the background who you weren't really paying that much attention to, because that's the sort of smarmy way to do this is like that's the cheating way. Right, exactly. And and I really like that. It was like we took this character and we put them right in front of you for a long time. And even if you figured it out or even if you thought he was involved or if you thought he was the only person involved, whatever. It's a lot more satisfying to think you figured it out and be right than to have no way you could have figured it out because it was just some yes. random crap in the background. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Gosford Park is uh, it's a good movie. It's not a good like murder mystery. Um, mm. It's like such a small part of that movie. Like and even when they bring in the investigator, like Stephen Fry coming in, like, you know, an hour and 15 minutes into the movie, he shows up and and is basically. <laughs> 
completely ineffectual, like even right. worse than Benoit Blanc, right? <laughs> yeah, so it, it, it's kind of like the murder mystery part of that movie is like happening like way in the background and you're really just there for all the other conflicts that are happening between the upper class characters and the lower class characters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Knives Out, I think, found a way to like bring both of those things to the forefront without having to like completely sacrifice one to the other. Yeah. My only thought is that since we mentioned Fran, I feel like Fran starts to feel a little bit like she plays a very big role ultimately in how right. it all happens, but she has the least amount of focus in the rest of the story. And so I think it still is all fine and you get the payoff that you want seeing Chris Evans go down and all that stuff. But there is a period at the end of Act 2 where suddenly everything's about Fran and even in act three where you're you're trying to for me it was hard to understand that like Fran wanted drugs and kind of knew some of it but didn't know some of it and set up a meeting in the laundromat to meet with him but she didn't know what that meant and sent the thing to him but he sent it to her and then da 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 and it starts to get a little hard to follow and I still don't quite understand how Chris Evans ultimately knew that Marta had given Harlan the right dosage in the end. We don't have to talk about that now. But there was still, there, at the very end, there were some questions that I still had that didn't feel like they'd quite been explained. But the more important part is that everything else works and it's very satisfying. So it's the scene at the pub when Marta explains, I switched the vials. Then he realizes, well, he had switched the labels. But if she switched the vials, she thinks she did it the wrong way. But he knows she actually did it the right way because he's the person who switched the labels. But then Marta, it's a double switch. Marta, okay, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And go. then right. And then right. Which makes him realize, yes. Okay, cool. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah ne- next to getting involved in a land war in Asia, it's the second most common blunder. <laughs> The last thing I want to bring up real quick is, you know, we talked when we talked about Stranger Things, we talked about how it's such a nice blend of being an homage to the past while also feeling modern. This movie does so much kind of best of both worlds things, blending things. So in the same way we're talking about, it blends these two genres of being sort of a crime movie and a whodunit. You know, if you think like if it was a traditional whodunit set in the Victorian English countryside in the 19th century or something, it might feel like, oh, weren't we done with these? Doesn't mean it couldn't be a good movie, but it might feel a little like, oh, we've I've seen this before, you know, or in Sage's case, I've seen this 10 times before. <laughs> and if it were like a very modern, sleek set in some brand new minimalist mansion in LA or something, then it wouldn't have the, the charm and the warmth and like the right. lovely aesthetic this movie has. You get both of those things. It's modern. These characters are using their cell phones. They're Googling. They're, you know, talking, they're whatever, talking about all current stuff. But it's set in this big old house and you have these big push-ins with the camera, this beautiful shot composition. It feels like this larger than life movie while also being set in our reality, more or less our our present day. And then you get that everywhere. You get like, Benoit Blanc is this classic kind of detective character, but then alongside him are Trooper Wagner talking about people's Love Insta, <laughs> Lakeith Stanfield, who is in everything these days, and right. I can't complain. He's um, so good. He's so good. He's sort of like the audience's WTF character. You know, the guy who's like, this is all <laughs> ridiculous. Even the fact that it was shot on digital, but like painstakingly, they made it feel like it was shot on film, like to the point where when you see the font of the character names come up. It's sort of shaking a little, like as if it were a film. I don't know if that stuff bugs you, Michael. Do you wait, Michael? Do you hate the the camera coming off the dolly and then turning into a handheld shot when I at the midpoint? I love that shot. I love that shot so much. <laughs> I like it. 
Yeah, I liked it in Social Network also. I feel like it's used very sparingly, and when it's used, it's used very well. Right. This is when Marta's coming out of the house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And suddenly everything's chaotic and Mm -hmm. tantalizing. Right. It changes the aesthetic, because we've all seen the movie where, like, now they're arguing, so now it's a handheld shot, but it's sort of like isn't a handheld shot and then it is so it's sort of like it unmoors you the same way the camera is unmoored and i really Mm -hmm. love that so yeah i just i just wanted to point out that i think like this movie is such a cool example of how to do something that feels like it's being an homage while also feeling modern but in a way that doesn't feel like those two things are getting in each other's way well and of course it's grappling with modern political of course yeah you know classism as you mentioned sage is not exactly a new sort of yeah subject matter for who whodunits to deal with like a lot of the upstairs downstairs which gosford park is kind of in that vein is just like that's all the english version of the whodunits are all class right all about class and so it's not it's not weird right to have like ah oh, the the butler did it classism themes are are in there from the beginning but this is specifically treating them with such relevant timely 2020 like dialogue and text that part of me this time around and actually the first time I saw it too I was like I almost wish this were set in the 80s or that this were just set in some kind of time out of place thing that would make it feel a little bit less referency kind of you know um part of me still feels that way but at the same time I don't know if it would be as fun Like, I feel like some of the fun and playfulness of it might be lost. I think that one of the things I love most about this movie is that Ryan Johnson isn't taking the movie itself too seriously. Mm -hmm. Like, not Mm -hmm. that he isn't serious about the craft of putting it together, as you were pointing out, Bri. It's like meticulously put together. And I, 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 like I said, I love his writing and all of this. But he also isn't trying to, like, change the world, right? This is not... (laughs) This movie is not aiming at like importance necessarily. And that's also kind of the point where there's an absurdity, right? Ryan Johnson is using Knives Out to poke fun at the political climate of 2020 in a little bit of an absurd way or 2019. It was late 2019 in an absurd way and and on, at both sides of the political climate in the United States. That playfulness and that treatment of the subject matter kind of makes it the enjoyable ride that it is. I don't want a more serious version of this. I also don't know if a more classic or timeless thing with all the references taken out of it would remotely be as funny, right? I don't think it would. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely like, just like everything I was saying, it's like sort of thematically is traditional and modern. It's dealing with modern things but also it's a murder mystery and like there's a family and someone did it so it sort of is also is juggling both those things at once too and i think hopefully in a way where if you watch it 50 years from now you're not going i don't get these references you know so i'm taken out of it they're little behind the scenes things you might not appreciate like the bigger thematic statement it's making but in terms of just little side jokes and that kind of thing like i think they're small enough that they're not gonna become less interesting with with time We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. And he's pretty even handed with it in, in a sense, because like he's, you know, you're calling out this character. They're, oh, they're an SJW. This one's an alt-right mm-hmm. person. This guy's a Trump supporter. But like the interesting thing about all that isn't like figuring out like who's who has like the correct opinion on any subject. It's the fact that when their livelihood and money is threatened, they assemble and fight as a unit, right? Like we preferred them yes. as like the family, right? So like, it doesn't matter what their individual politics are anymore. None of them are really actually that political. They really just care about themselves and they're and keeping all their money, right? Yeah. The, the way that the film handles class consciousness and class conflict, I think is really well, really well done. 
And I love the last, the last like poke at all of it, which is when Chris Evans is going like, all right, this is our ancestral home. This is our birthright, you know? And uh-huh. Daniel Craig's like, no, he bought this for like in the 80s, <laughs> yeah. you know, from this other family. And it's it's like definitely not something that 300 years or a thousand years, or obviously there's a very pointed commentary there. <laughs> on yeah generational wealth and what people think of as being people especially in the u.s think of it think that they are owed (laughs) right yeah like both sides are kind of equally uninformed about the things that they claim to care so much about and yeah i feel like it it's doing all these bigger structural things and i also had that feeling of like oh it's weird how 2019 2020 this movie is but also it feels like it's just sprinkled on the top you won't need to understand the references later to get the bigger point. And in the moment, I think it crystallizes everything and makes us immediately be able to identify and relate to people. So ultimately, I think it is a, a strength of the movie. It's kind of bold in the way it does it, too. Like, there aren't very many movies that are so willing to be like, this movie came out now. Like, this person has an Apple Watch. Like, technology, like, everything is very of that time. And it's it's interesting, but I think that's part of what makes Knives Out this kind of refresh and reimagining of this genre or genres as we've talked about and why it's so much fun to watch. I love that they that he like he picks a working class hero here with with Marta, which is itself a refreshing thing in like the murder mystery genre. So like when I watched uh, Death on the Nile, Agatha Christie murder mystery, mm-hmm. Peter Ustinov was playing Poirot in that one mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. back in the seventies, I think. You you've got like the murder mystery happening. But they're all sitting on this like fancy boat and all of the main characters are upper class characters. And there's like a bunch of people who are like serving them. Right. Like there's waiters and all this stuff. They never enter into the mystery. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. I'd be interested to find out if like they exist in the novel or if there's a way that they logically are removed from like the mystery. But it's just kind of weird that you have Mm. all of these, you know, helper characters that are there that aren't acknowledged by the plot. It's a nice thing to to have in this movie where like the main character is a nurse, right? And you know, we're not just like focusing entirely on the upper classes in this movie. Yeah. Working on all the levels, creating a very delightful experience in a way that I think very few movies do. I think that's just kind of the last thought I I had is like it's walking out of the theater I was like, "Oh, I just saw a movie." In yep. a way that I I don't often feel like it, it almost felt like a 90s kind of thing where like mm-hmm. you would go and just see a movie and yeah. that, you could just watch a whole movie and it would be over and the and whole story like, would be there you wouldn't have to like right you know right look stuff up afterwards well it's original yeah it's original story right. yes that was not a piece of ip before it became a movie i mm. feel like that's the 90s feeling of it where it's like right. remember when all the new movies were new <laughs> right <laughs> But a, a genre movie that's new, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ryan Johnson wrote a new genre movie. Yes. Why don't we all go around and say what lessons we're going to take from Knives Out? Sage, we'll save you for last. We'll, we'll let the, the guest have the honor spot. Trisha, what's your lesson? My lesson has to do with the ensemble cast here and just that they're big. Mm. We've mentioned it, but... I feel like when I read a lot of scripts that are trying to do ensemble casts or supporting characters more broadly, what I'm seeing is personalities that are not big enough. If you have a ton of characters, they all have to be really distinctive. They all have to have a really unique voice. 
a unique way of presenting their own value systems that they like are incredibly clear even on the page. Um, so there's no mistaking one for the other Nat. And even if, you know, the actual family tree of the Thrombies is a little bit hard to parse because Tony Collette's not a blood relation. Her husband was the son. He's mm-hmm. dead. She's still around. And then, yeah, you have some of the others where it's like there's a wide age range between the siblings. So like somehow this teenager and Chris Evans are cousins and you're like, right, okay, I'm with you. It's a little hard to parse, but even so, there's no mistaking you know, you have three cousins, say, that are in the same generation. You have Nazi child. <laughs> and, and then you have Meg, right, who's in college. And then you have Chris Evans. There's no mistaking any of them for the other. They're all enormous characters. And even when I think about the poster of this movie, you know, they dressed them in a rainbow color yeah, of very colorful suits. marketing. <laughs> but that's what you need. And not just because this is a comedy, although... That's another thing that you get out of having larger than life characters is the comedic effect of all of them are incredibly, like, incredibly lack self-awareness. So each one of them individually is a comic character. Right. Right. Tony Collette's character is just as outrageous as anybody else. Or she's up there. But, like, they're all outrageous in their own way. Right. And so they're all comedic. You get that out of making them big. It builds conflict into the scenes when they're in together. You get that out of making them big, which is also comedy when you have character conflict between characters like this that lack self-awareness. And your audience is with you. We're not getting confused about who's who, even if we don't necessarily remember exactly how they're quite related to each other on the tree. It's so smart in this kind of movie, but just as a rule for a supporting cast, this is what you need. Go big, just go big, go bigger in your writing. And, you know, if you need to rein it back, rein it back, but you probably don't like give an actor a chance to play it because they can. I think my favorite line in this movie is uh, Tony Collette saying, I read a tweet about a New Yorker article about you. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. Everything about her delivery is amazing. Yeah, right. Even just the way she says hi to Harlan when she goes upstairs. With the, hi. Like, there's just, there's something extra, yeah. like, happening in there. Yeah. The characters are all big, but they're also three-dimensional enough. Like, you get to see different facets. Each of them is, like, right about a thing or wrong about a thing. Like you said, they have different values. And so it's it's not just one-dimensional bigness. It's They're still nuanced, and you get to see them enough that you get to like have different experiences with each of the characters at some point in the movie. And so I think that's just the extra bit on top that makes it that I find really impressive about how he uses this ensemble cast of characters. Well, there's character consistency, which we've talked about before, too, Mm. which is like the character logic has to hold up where if they're sitting there telling Benoit Blanc, you know, I had a close relationship with Harlan, then we have to see that that logically makes sense in their mind. Mm -hmm. Right. In their mind, they did care about Harlan. They were the only one who cared about Harlan or whatever. So it has that logical consistency as well as sort of behavioral consistency throughout. It's consistent without being one note because the logic is sound what you're talking about michael yeah awesome brian what's your lesson in a movie that is marketed as a whodunit i'm very glad that there was a crime committed and that someone done it like you know as we talked about (laughs) like it does give you all the payoffs in the third act that you are 
here for. And I remember seeing the trailer and immediately thinking like, all right, so Christopher Plummer faked his death to like see which one of the family was going to be like more crappy in the way they deal with it or whatever. Or it's going to be some nonsense you never could have seen coming. Kind of the Ocean's 12 problem about like Mm -hmm. none of the evidence was here, but surprise. Or even like when the martyr reveal happens, uh, you know, partway into the movie that there's like, oh, this is all just about like hiding the evidence and there really was no crime committed or anything. So ultimately, for as much as this movie does do all the things it does and changes genres and stuff, at the end of the day, like there was a criminal, a crime was committed. Technically, a murder happened because Fran dies. It was one of the family members, somebody who was right there in front of you the whole time. And the details were all there. You know, the third act delivers on the marketing and what was promised, but in a way that you weren't expecting. And I, and I mm-hmm. like that a lot. Always bring up No Country for Old Men as an example of a movie that subverts genre expectations for thematic reasons. But I feel like that movie is not presented as a traditional Western. You don't watch the first Right. 20 minutes or 30 minutes of No Country for Old Men and go like, yep, this is a classic Western. You're like, no, there's a guy killing people with a freaking, you know, air thing. Like this is not (laughs) not like a traditional Western. So then in the end, when it says we're not going to do the Western thing, we're actually going to subvert those expectations. It doesn't feel like it's a super like they're cheating or like they're not paying off on the promise that was stated. So I think the universal lesson for me is subvert expectations all you want. But if you do some promise some things to your audience, you do need to kind of deliver on those things. You should deliver on them in a way that they're not expecting, but deliver on them in a way that is not just going to make them leave the theater going, yeah, but you didn't do the thing I was excited about in this movie, mm-hmm. you know, like, and I think that that's what I love about this movie is that for all of the non-traditional unique stuff it does, it still ultimately pays off as a traditional whodunit. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's dangerous for us to use the phrase subvert expectations and Ryan Johnson in the same podcast. Um, so let's just oh, why is that? Keep- <laughs> <laughs> and that goes back to the, the quote I can never remember where, where like Mark Hamill said, we got to give them what they want. And Ryan Johnson said, no, we got to give them what they don't want. Or it's something like that where it was like, wait a minute. No, we, you do want to give them the thing they want, which I think Knives Out does. It's like, I, we are going to give you the thing you were expecting. And I feel like part of the frustration with Last Jedi was like, it was, we're not going to give you the thing you want because we're going to be smarter than that. And like, that's a great ideology, I think, but it doesn't work, especially in Star Wars. I can feel Pandora's yep. box. You've gone too close. We're going to push it back down. <laughs> Run away. Go the other direction. No comment. <laughs> yeah. It's worth being said that like this is also a movie that he got to write. And again, it's a self-contained movie. Yeah. It has a start and it has an end. And it's original. Like all those things that I think help it be all those things. Yeah. And it, which kind of goes into my lesson a little bit, which is, I guess, the essentially the lesson pointed out in your video, Sage. So I'm not completely stealing your lesson, but just drawing the way you draw attention to the genre switching. And, you know, you have this beautiful diagram. I love simple, clear diagrams where you see what like acts and what beats they took from one genre and where they put it in the other. As you point out in the video, as you were putting out earlier, Trisha, there are plenty of examples of mixing genres and like you use Blade Runner Sage in your video of like it's a noir detective story, but it's dystopian sci-fi. We're gonna mash these things together. And that's can be really fun. But it was really exciting to see an, a new movie, as we've already talked about, for all the other reasons of just it was a new original movie, but it's also doing something new with genre and with form and a lot of the time i go to 
I watch movies and I get fatigued by how similar it all is or just how, you know, we've, there is a structure, there's all these things in place, but it's always really fun to see people break them and find new things that are just as good and work just as well. And so just the idea of what if you switch genres for a little bit in your movie, I feel like that opens up just a ton of interesting questions and possibilities. It gets me excited about the future of storytelling, which is good, which I like feeling. So <laughs> that is my takeaway from Knives Out and from your video, Sage. Sage, what is your lesson? Yeah, so I guess it's maybe kind of in the same ballpark as uh, what, what you're saying. Know your genres and like what actually uh, defines mm-hmm. them. Mm. Yeah. On a like a molecular level, you want to like know what that genre usually does so that you can break it. Trisha was saying earlier on about usually genres mix to kind of add on to that. Like the way they usually mix is you'll take the structure of one genre and you'll put it in the skin of another genre. Right. Mm -hmm. Like the the aesthetic, right? So like Star Wars has a fantasy structure in a sci-fi Western skin. Mm -hmm. You want to be able to identify the difference between what things are aesthetic and what things are actually like the engine of the story. Uh, What are the conflicts that the characters are facing? Who the protagonist is? Those are all good things to study in order to do things that are like this, that are interesting because they surprise the audience, right? Because like, even though, you know, the average viewer isn't, you know, sitting there going like, oh, this is the mystery structure. This is the crime structure, right? They know on an intuitive level, right? Like, like people identify that stuff. They know when like a gear has shifted somewhere and we're now watching a different movie. So, yeah. And I feel like you could feel that, you know, I felt it in the theater walking out with everybody, but also just the conversation around Knives Out and how well it did at the box office and all this stuff that I think that people could detect that something special had happened Mm. on this intuitive level like you're talking about. And I think that's that's what movies can do at their best. And so it was really fun to see a great example of that. Why don't we go around and say what we've been watching recently? Reverse chronological order. Sage, what have you been watching recently? Uh, well, I just watched uh, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Mm-hmm. Nice. Ah. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's the new Charlie Kaufman. One of the three of us liked it, so you can talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? The You guys didn't like it? I have not seen all of it, to be fair. So but that is maybe also telling about how I felt about the part that I did watch. I want to hear what you thought about it, Sage. I just thought it was like, it just kind of like swept me off my feet a bit because it just puts you in such a weird headspace, especially that like that opening section in the car. And you're just like, mm-hmm. what is he, you know, what is he thinking? What is she thinking? And it just goes on for like so long. It's like the longest scene in a movie ever. <laughs> and I, I, at some points I thought it was just going to be the whole movie was just going right. to be then driving mm-hmm. it. like in some ways it is um because <laughs> yeah. like that tone doesn't let up for like the entire thing so i think it's a really it's not like a uh a typical movie it's a very surrealist it's very subjective very charlie kaufman very charlie yeah it's very charlie charlie kaufman <laughs> i like that it's like it's like conversation horror or like relationship <laughs> horror or something like yeah. that I was like, I've never been so like terrified and uncomfortable by a movie where like nothing has happened, but like people are talking in rooms. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. 
I should finish it. I should go back and watch <laughs> watch all of it because I, I was watching it for. I mean, it doesn't stop being what you saw. <laughs> I actually found it easier to watch as I went along, Michael. So I, mm, okay. I'm with you. I really struggled through the first, I want to say, half of it. But I'm glad I stuck with it. And it did get really interesting. And, you know. Yeah. It's not Eternal Sunshine is what I'm just going to tell you. But <laughs> well, sure. Yeah. It, it has its own. It's an interesting movie for sure. Like, I watched it, like, at midnight when I was, like, you know, a little jumped out a bit. Ah, that's Um, what it is. It's, (laughs) it's, like, the perfect time to watch that where you're just kind of, because it's, like, it's kind of, like, taking place in a dream space, you know? Or at least, like, like it feels that way. Maybe that's a spoiler. I don't know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's hard to spoil that movie too much. Yeah. Okay. So I need to stay up late until I can't think (laughs) and then watch I'm Thinking of Ending Things. If you want to get real disconnected from reality. (laughs) I like it. <laughs> okay, well, so continuing in this order, I recently watched Apollo 13, which nice. is heard one of, of my favorite movies, right? Uh-huh. You might have heard of it, but I hadn't seen in a pretty long time because it came out a while ago. And, uh, you know, it was sort of after, you know, we talked about Hidden Figures um, a few episodes ago. And so that had kind of been in my brain and I just wanted to do another one of those cool Apollo space mission movies and apollo 13 i'm here to report is still really really good and it's kind of again it's that 90s thing of like you just made a good movie it Mm. just starts and then it goes and then it ends and it's so satisfying it made me think of you a little bit trisha because you're always talking about uh increasing the pressure on characters and i feel like it's such a classic example of literally like it's just constantly putting more and more pressure on all the characters it's this amazing situation that it's in, that they're all in, and the way it's juggling the stories on the spaceship, at NASA, at home, just all those things. It's, it is a very well-constructed movie, and it just made me appreciate it, and I want to go watch it again right now, talking about it. So if for some reason you haven't seen Apollo 13, go see Apollo 13. It's great. I remember being in the theater with my dad seeing that movie and the scene where the wife loses her wedding ring down the drain in the bathroom. I don't know how old I was, but I was like, a theme is happening. (laughs) 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 Like I was like, oh no, a symbol just happened. (laughs) Daddy, I think I can see a theme in the movie. Yes, that's how I sounded. Yeah. Right? <laughs> oh my God, we have baby Trisha now. Baby Trisha and baby Michael can hang out. Baby Trisha is Southern? <laughs> Raised by Benoit Blanc? Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Potentially, actually, I was maybe living in South Carolina. So. <laughs> awesome. I forget the order. <laughs> Brian. Brian, what have you been watching recently? Well, speaking of No Country for Old Men, my girlfriend and I have started a chronological rewatch of the Coen Brothers filmography. Nice. Uh, nice. So we're only a couple in right now, but I had not seen Blood Simple in about 20 years. Uh, she had not seen it ever. I didn't remember much. I remember I thought it was great when I saw it, but I didn't remember almost any details. And holy crap, is this movie good and does it yep. hold up right now? It's, it's very 80s in a way that feels weird when you're watching a Coen Brothers movie, but it's like this tense 80s thriller with a Coen Brothers aesthetic and there's like weird Sam Raimi shots out there's like these evil dead shots where like the camera's speeding along the ground which is funny because Sam Raimi would direct their script Crime Wave one year later so I guess they were already like 
buds at that point. It's Frances McDormand's first role, and she is insanely good, as you would expect. M. Emmett Walsh, who you may recognize as the security man in Knives Out. Among many other things. Uh, among many other things, <laughs> yes. Speaking of which, we didn't even talk about how Knives Out is a weird Blade Runner reunion where you have <laughs> M. Emmett Walsh and Ana de Armas yep. in the same movie. Right. The interesting thing was this was my first time seeing it since No Country for Old Men existed, obviously, because I haven't seen it in like 20 years. And it feels like practice for No Country for Old Men. Mm -hmm. It's full of these tense moments in small rooms where like one character is on one side of a wall and another character is on the other and neither knows what the other one's doing. And you're just like, you know, watching, watching, waiting to see what's going to happen. Our No Country for Old Men video, we talked about the two plus two thing that, you know, you want to give your audience two plus two and let them figure out the four instead of just telling them the four. Like there's a sequence of this movie, there's maybe 20 minutes of no dialogue and you're left to kind of go, wait, why is he? Oh, right. Because he thought that even though that's not what happened, we know that's not what happened, but we understand why he thinks that's what happened. Da, da, da. So it's it makes the movie so compelling and so rewarding when it's all paid off when you're like aha i i did figure that out 20 minutes ago and i'm i'm very happy you know sort of like knives <laughs> out so yeah blood simple director's cut if you haven't seen it in a long time watch it again if you haven't seen it ever watch it right now i will have to go watch it trisha yes so i saw a movie from 2020 called rams which is actually an australian remake of an icelandic film <laughs> from 2015 hold on yep checks the trisha boxes okay go ahead yep, yep. <laughs> So there was this movie uh, out of Iceland in 2015 called Rams, and it's about these two elderly sheep farmers and their brothers, and they haven't spoken to each other in like 40 years, even though they live basically on a piece of shared inherited property, like a sheep farm. Um, They have separate houses. They're just, you know, have an estranged relationship, and yet they both are still farming sheep. They remade this movie in 2020. A writer-director named Jeremy Sims remade this film and set it in Western Australia, starring Sam Neill and huh. Michael Caton and Miranda Richardson. And it's great. It's really funny. It's bizarre. I mean, it's such a very specific world. And, you know, it's just kind of this touching family story, but there's so much specificity to it. Like, I just love a really good, odd, specific <laughs> comedy. And this is exactly that. And um, Sam Neill is wonderful in it, as he is in everything, always. I'm in love with Sam Neill. If you don't follow him on social media, <laughs> you should follow Sam Neill on social media. If you don't know, he's at a place in his career where he doesn't have to do anything he doesn't want to do. And he's been at that place for a really long time. So he just doesn't take stuff he's not interested in. But he takes stuff like this, which is great. Is his Twitter bio just like, I would like to have seen Montana? Because I really want it to be. Uh, no, uh -huh. he's at two paddocks, which is the name of his vineyard <laughs> and farm in rural New Zealand, in the South Island of New Zealand. And he has sense. all of these wild animals. Like he actually is a farmer and has a ton of wild animals and his wild animals are like his chickens and sheep and everything are named after like famous actors. So <laughs> this morning he was posting about Kate Winslet, one of his chickens. And it was, you should follow Sam Neill on social media, but you how should is, also. How is Sam Neill the most interesting man in the world? He really is. <laughs> it's amazing. What a joy he is. But he's, and this movie is just a great, like, I love how in Hunt for the Wilder People and in Rams, you just get the sense that he's only playing himself in movies now. Uh -huh. <laughs> like, he doesn't have to do, he doesn't have to, if he doesn't want to do anything else. And. That's kind of what we've got. So yeah, Rams from 2020, you can rent it on iTunes or, or whatever. Uh, it's great. Nice. 
Cool. Excellent. Okay. Well, this has been our conversation on Knives Out. Sage, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Check out his YouTube channel, Just Right. Mm -hmm. The link to his Knives Out videos will be in the show notes below. We want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons that make the show possible. Beyond the Screenplay is produced by Vince Major, and our editor is Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker. I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Sage Hyden. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. See ya.